Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Valerie Alexander. She's a renowned expert on happiness and inclusion and globally recognized speaker on the topics of happiness in the workplace, the advancement of women, and unconscious bias. So a lot of great things that she's doing. So I'm really excited to talk to her today and hear a little bit about her story. So Valerie, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me on today. The things I'm focusing on right now are sort of everything in my life led up to this in a way that's really interesting and was very unplanned. I I had the privilege of being the commencement speaker for my undergrad alma mater, which is Trinity University in 2016. And one of the biggest things I had to convey to the graduating seniors was whatever life plan you have right now is not going to be what happens. And I think we have to keep that in mind that changing direction is not failure and that you are absolutely not going to wind up where you think you will when you start out. So I started, I went from undergrad straight to law school. I practiced law. I was in the Silicon Valley at the start of the internet era. So I very quickly went from law to venture capital to investment banking. I was the executive at an internet company. And then my mom had a brain tumor that was the size of a navel orange. And I was pretty much done with the Silicon Valley by that point anyway. So I sold my house, I sold my car, I gave away all my furniture and with two suitcases and a dog, I moved back to Indiana to the small town I swore I would never return to when I left at 17. And I took care of my mom for a year. That was amazing. She just celebrated her 80th birthday. So that was a very good year. And then when she was all better and it was time to get back to my life, the Silicon Valley had collapsed by that point. The bubble had burst. And so I moved to LA instead. I started writing movies. I enjoyed great success as a screenwriter. It was a really fun career. And I also directed, we, you, as you and I talked about earlier, I directed a lot of commercials for the marriage equality movement, which was wonderful. And I started writing books and I wrote a book about happiness. And I started being asked to speak about happiness and that led to a lot of other work. I was also asked to speak about being a woman in Hollywood, being a successful woman in Hollywood. And at the time, I was super interested in brain science. I had just discovered the concept of male brains and female brains. There are instinctive differences between the way the male brain functions and the way the female brain functions. And so I started speaking on that topic. I wound up writing a couple more books. And in 2016, I started a tech company about happiness. It was a, we produced communication products that made it easier for you to make the people you love happy. And in the course of being the CEO of a tech company, I was asked to give a TED talk about my experiences as a CEO combined with my knowledge of brain science. And that became the talk, how to outsmart your own unconscious bias which got very well received. It's had a lot of views and 
it drove me down a whole new pathway, which is discovering the brain science behind bias. And then because of that TED talk, I was asked to speak about unconscious bias. And again, my expertise was both on the brain science, but also on gender issues. And I was being asked to talk about different kinds of bias, about um, racial disparity, about disability bias, about LGBTQ bias. And I wasn't qualified. And so I kept turning down all these opportunities. And I had a business advisor in my life who said, why don't you instead get qualified? So I did the same thing I always do, which is I just deep dove. I took courses, I read books, and I realized that when you approach this topic from the concept of the way the human brain functions, through from 7 million years of evolution, our brains function a certain way when we encounter somebody different, somebody quote unquote, not in our tribe. And if we can approach the understanding of it from that way, the way our brains are going to naturally function and what we can do to build different neural pathways to overcome the natural biases that we have, and then to change our systems and our structures, especially in our workplaces, so that those biases aren't reflected in our performance metrics, in our interview process, in who gets hired, who gets second chances, who gets advanced, who gets listened to in the meeting, the awareness of it without the shame or without the judgment or without the name calling about it is a way we can move society forward. And I realized I had an opportunity to bring that knowledge to a lot more people. So that's why I started doing that work. And you so humbly mentioned your TED talk. Uh, so I, I appreciate the fact that you're like, oh, it's just, this is just what's happened. Um, and it's a very great TED talk. And I will definitely make sure to, to leave it in the description so people can definitely go hear it. So it seems like things started to kind of switch when you first wrote that book about happiness. So what was that experience like for you? I was a screenwriter at the time, and so was my husband. And screenwriters in Hollywood are part of a union called the Writers Guild of America. We're unionized. And our union went on strike. And so we were both on strike at the same time, which can be a strain on a marriage. <laughs> and during that time, at one point, he said to me, how are you so happy all the time? How are you just still happy throughout the, the challenges we were going through? And I said, yeah, I don't know, because it's not even my native language. And when I said that, I realized two things. One, it wasn't. I mean, I wasn't. And, and by the way, I have wonderful parents. This is not in any way that, but they came from a generation. Their parents lived through the depression and they were raised. Um, you know, my dad was a Vietnam era veteran and their, their happiness wasn't a primary goal. And my mother was Irish Catholic, my dad, Russian Jew. These are not communities that make happiness the priority. Security is your priority, you know, whatever family, whatever priorities you have. I, I love, I talk to people a lot who are parents and I say, what do you want most for your children? And the, those people always say, I just want them to be happy. And it's like, that's a great belief, but when they major in 
art studies, suddenly you're not that interested in them being happy, are you? Suddenly it's like, but wait a minute, why aren't you getting a degree in marketing or accounting? Or when they bring that person home from a different culture and you weren't expecting it, suddenly their happiness isn't that important, is it? And so a lot of us grew up in households where happiness wasn't an, a priority, wasn't a objective that you could work towards. I think it was John Lennon famously said, I, had, I was seven years old and the teacher asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I wanted to be happy. And the teacher said, you don't understand growing up. And he said, well, you don't understand life. Um, that's probably apocryphal, but that, that story is shared much. Well, when I realized that I wasn't raised with happiness as a priority, and yet somehow I had it in my life, I realized I had done a lot of work to get there. And so the concept that it wasn't my native language really made it clear, it's not most people's native language. And we seem to have this concept that, oh, I just have to think about it really hard. And I will become, or like, I'll read an article, I'll read this book. It's like a cooking segment, right? On TV, they, they put together all the ingredients and then they cut to taking it out of the oven. And you're like, there was a lot in between there that had to happen. When we learn a new language, we give ourselves time. We take a lot of classes. We read a lot of books. We understand that there's failure and setbacks. We put in effort to be around other people who speak that language. We need to be putting that same effort into the other ways in which we want to fundamentally change our lives. And so you're not going to just wake up one day and start speaking Greek. You're not going to just wake up one day and start being happy you can decide that happiness will be your core regardless of your circumstances. And by the way, I'm also going to share one of my biggest um, requirements for myself with the book. And now I, I own a publishing company because after I wrote happiness as a second language, I followed it with success as a second language. And then I trademarked the phrase as a second language for self-help. So we have now published parenting as a second language, creativity as a second language, grief as a second language, and mindfulness as a second language. One of the requirements in the series is that the books are, are anecdotes, lessons, and exercises. The exercises have to be available to everybody, regardless of their financial circumstances. So if you are living in a mansion in Beverly Hills, you can do all of the exercises in every book. If you are in a one bedroom hotel with your three children, you can still do all of the exercises in every book. And that was extremely important to me because I don't want this to be inaccessible. I find so much of the happiness space to come from a place of extreme privilege. And I find that very problematic but I will also be the first person to acknowledge if you aren't sure how you're going to feed your children, nobody should be holding you to a standard of happiness. Give yourself as much grace as you need and, you know, take a few deep breaths and acknowledge that you're doing the best that you can and God bless you for that. So 
we all have to also hold ourselves to the reality of our circumstances, but do know that you can, you can be happier. You can choose to have happier outlooks in whatever circumstances you're in. And do you find, or even, you know, does your husband still find that you're able to be continu- continuously in quotes, happy through, through all circumstances? So I'll share with you, for me, there's a big distinction between happiness as a sort of core being and being happy as an emotion. Think of it a little bit like, I'm going to say something challenging, think of it a little bit like your religion. Whatever religion you practice, you don't stop being that religion when you're challenged. And to me, happiness is the same thing. The first exercise in the book, and when I speak to groups about personal happiness, the first exercise we do is just saying, I'm a happy person. And that's not saying I'm happy because you might not be happy in that moment, but it's saying I'm a happy person. That's reinforcing that neural pathway that that is your core. That is who you are at your baseline. I wrote the book in 2010 through, there was immediately an agent got me under contract. I was stuck in this very bad contract for two years. I had to extricate myself from that. And then, then I wound up publishing independently in 2013. So I wrote a book about happiness in 2010 and 2011 was probably the worst year of my life. Um, And the book I talk about February 11th, 2000 was the worst day ever. And very bad things happened on February 11th, 2000. And the book talks about how I dealt with that, but nothing came close to what happened in 2011. Um, My husband and I were betrayed financially by somebody close to us and we lost everything, literally everything we owned. And the time that happened, I was pregnant after four years of, um, of IVF and I lost the baby and we lost our home. And after I lost the baby, I spent three days literally in the fetal position in bed, unable to function. And at one point I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to go on. And this is going to sound like the most arrogant thing any human being has ever said. At one point, I literally picked up my own book. I picked up the book I had written and I started flipping through it thinking, how do I get through this? And I came across the concept of I'm a happy person. And I just kept telling myself over and over, I'm a happy person. I am a happy person. And I'm talking about like hours laying on the floor, just saying, I'm a happy person. And it wasn't true when I said it. It wasn't true when I said it. But saying it makes it a lot closer to being true. And here, the craziest thing is there would have never been a book about happiness in my, in my home if I hadn't written it. It was like the 2012 me went back in time and told the 2010 me, write a book about happiness because you're going to need it. And so people, the book is called how to achieve lasting permanent happiness is the subtitle. And people are like, lasting permanent happiness is not possible. And my response is lasting permanent happiness is possible. You're just not going to be happy all the time. But when you start that failure spiral, when you start that downward, you know, oh, I, I'm not going to, you know, keep this job and then I'm going to lose my home. And then my family will start speaking to me and blah, 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 everything's going to go die old and alone. 
you know, that spiral, you can stop yourself. You can, you can stop that spiral by saying something like, I'm a happy person. And, and when you're on that deep downward trajectory, saying I'm a happy person doesn't bounce you right back up to your happiness baseline, but it stops you from hitting rock bottom. And there's a, a, a lot of techniques like this in the book um, where just stopping this downward spiral, again, like I said, it doesn't, it's not going to be true when you say it, but saying it makes it more true and it gets you a lot closer to back to going back to your baseline. And then when you say it, when you're naturally happy, if you're naturally in a great mood and you're happy, saying I'm a happy person or saying out loud five things that are making you happy in that moment or flashing back to a really happy memory. Um, there's techniques about that as well. That all raises your happiness baseline as well. But it's, it's a booster and a disruptor. It's a booster that when you're naturally happy, if you say, you know, do a happiness technique, it reinforces that neural pathway and it makes it more true. Neural pathways are really fascinating to drop in the brain science. I love brain science. Um, our neural pathways we form over a lifetime you can control the formation of your own neural pathway. And a neural pathway is sort of a thought shortcut. Well, the more you reinforce that neural pathway, the smoother and faster it gets. And literally the deeper, like we have brain imaging now, we can see the same thought traveling over the same neural pathway. That little pathway gets a little bit deeper each time that synapse fires over it, which means you're literally in a rut. When you say I'm in a rut, yes, you're in a rut. There is a neural pathway getting deeper and deeper and deeper in your brain. So control your own rut, create the happiness rut that you're going to find yourself in by just through repetition and through believing that it's possible to return to a state of happiness when, when whatever condition you're in passes. And that's a great story to share. And, you know, being able to say the difference between being a happy person and just your happiness levels, I, th I think it really does matter. I um, mean, especially in a situation like the one that you shared. Now, with all of the brain science, with all of the different things you've you've learned about happiness, gender, what is it that interests you the most? And have you thought about going back and getting another degree in some sort of <laughs> neurological field. Oh, no. I, I, I remember when I first started college, someone had a sign on the door of their dorm room that said school sucks, but work is worse. And I am the polar opposite. I love I, school, especially law school. I felt, oh, I dropped out after the first year of law school. I wound up going back because I was in, I was at Berkeley and then I wound up getting into a PhD program at Berkeley. So I had readmitted to the law school so I could finish both degrees. But um, once I started practicing law, I was like, this is amazing. We're actually doing something. What I, I work with a lot of companies on happiness in the workplace as a strategic business advantage. Companies would save hundreds of billions of dollars if they would focus on the happiness of their workforce as their top priority. And all of the research on this, of which there is vast research, shows that the happiness we get from our jobs is our sense of accomplishment. The, the belief that we are making progress on work that matters, that we're putting our skills to their best use every day. I never felt that way in school. 
the the con I did really well in school, but the concept that I'm going to read something so that I can then pass a test on it has never felt fulfilling to me. Whereas what I do for a living now literally changes people's lives. And I wouldn't give that up for anything. I also find that if you are really diligent about your sources, you can get a very good education from reading peer-reviewed scientific journals. So I do not believe in the university of the internet. I definitely do not believe in the university of Facebook. Those are not valid sources, but there's a lot of really good um, journals and sources. There's a researcher I follow. Um, there's a couple, couple researchers I follow. I follow Patricia Devine at the University of Wisconsin about the effectiveness of unconscious bias training. I follow Regini Verma at University of Pennsylvania on gender differences in brain activity. And these are, you know, people who are doing really cutting edge and interesting work. And when you follow that work, to me, that's as valuable an education as you can get. And I stay very up to date on diversity and inclusion. Um, I read a lot of what comes out and the, like the book, I most highly recommend a book called Biased by Jennifer Eberhardt. I highly recommend, so you want to talk about race by Ijiolu Olowu. So sorry if I'm butchering her name, I apologize for that. Um, there's a book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. These are really valuable sources for just seeing the reality. Um, there's also, I read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It's fantastic. It's so painful. It was so difficult for me to get through because I just can't believe human beings can be that cruel to each other. Um, but yeah, so the idea, the concept of going back to get another degree, to have some imprimatur of authority, that's not the direction I want to go. That's completely okay. <laughs> now, what would you recommend for somebody who realizes that like their employer needs to focus on happiness in the workforce? What would you recommend for them to do? Um, download the Gallup report, State of the American Workforce, and share it with your employer because Gallup has been studying this for more than two decades. And the statistics are undeniable right now. There are more than 18 distinct metrics across which having a happier workforce saves you a lot of money. The, the Gallup breaks down the workforce into the very happy, the happy, the unhappy, and the very unhappy. And the difference between that bottom quartile, the very unhappy, and that top quartile, the very happy, is... 41% lower absenteeism. It's 24% less turnover in high turnover occupations like retail and service. It's 58% less turnover in low turnover occupations like unionized and government jobs. Think about how much money your company would save if you could reduce your absenteeism by 41% and your turnover by 58%. And far more statistics that you wouldn't even think of. Happy employees have fewer workers' compensation claims. And on average, their workers' compensation claims are lower. Happy employees have um, fewer defect issues. They have fewer workplace injuries. There's 28% less shrinkage when your employees are very happy. 
And shrinkage isn't just theft. Um, it's also, I would say, if, if someone's walking out the back door of your restaurant and they've just clocked out for the night and they notice that a 50 pound sack of shrimp was left out of the freezer, what's your unhappy employee going to do at that moment? They're just gonna keep walking. But your happy employee is gonna stop and go pick up that 50 pound sack of shrimp and put it back in the freezer before they leave. And again, there are so many, your, your customer service, your productivity, you are less likely to get sued because of the way an employee treats a customer or the way an employee treats another employee if they're happy. And happiness is really, really easy to get right. It goes back to what I was just talking about. This has been extensively studied. The number one source of happiness in our work is our sense of accomplishment. And yet we don't have managers or leaders focused on making sure that each person who works for them gets a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day, every day. That's all you have to do. Stop moving the goal line. Stop taking people's finish line away from them because they're halfway through a project and you put them on something else and give someone else the project to finish. Or, you know, we all respond to the tyranny of the urgent. Whatever is urgent gets our greatest attention. And we pull employees off something important that they're working on to go make them deal with the urgent thing. You have to do it. The urgent thing needs to get dealt with, but communicate to that employee, hey, thanks for what you're working on. That's important. I need you to go handle this urgent thing. When you're done with that, come back and finish this. You're the person who's got this. Like that is such an easy thing to convey rather than stop, go do that. As soon as they stop, go do that, you're triggering all kinds of cortisol release in the bloodstream. The, the amygdala is engaged. People are in a moment of fear when their employer says, stop what you're doing, go do that. That, that instantly triggers stress and stress floods the, blood zone with the bloodstream with cortisol and cortisol makes you less productive. <laughs> um, makes your heart race, makes you sweat, makes your blood pressure go up. And I, I say this all the time, the amygdala is our source in our brain of fear. It's, it's what engages with the endocrine system to, you know, release the cortisol or in extreme circumstances, the adrenaline. The prefrontal cortex is where our executive functions happen. That's where we get um, our social interaction, our control of emotions, our complex decision-making, all that happens in the prefrontal cortex. The amygdala is more than 7 million years old. The prefrontal cortex is less than 2 million years old. When an older brother and a younger brother are in the same space and they want different things and there's no one around to control them, the older brother always wins. When your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex are both trying to engage at the same time, the amygdala always wins. It literally shuts down the prefrontal cortex. So that's why Navy SEALs train in heightened states of fear so that when they are in the actual situation, they've already trained their brain to remain active, to remain able to make good decisions, to control their emotions, to have continued positive social interactions because they've trained for that. Your average hourly employee on your factory line has not done that. Your average waitress has not done that. They, they do not know how to get their fear under control in a way to still make good decisions and control their emotions.
So if you are instilling fear in people, if you are creating stress in people, they are not making good decisions. And that is bad for your workplace. So get that under control. <laughs> now, I'm sure there's instances where you go in and help companies and they don't take your advice. <laughs> how, how does that go over with you? The much bigger problem with that, with the happiness in the workplace, it's interesting because the work I do really does lay out step-by-step step how to train your managers, how to speak to your employees, how to get these effective outcomes. And everybody nods along and I think they mostly get it and they don't, they aren't resistant to it. The much bigger challenge is when we're talking about eliminating unconscious bias. And I work really hard to take the shame and the judgment out of that topic and to make people see, again, here are some simple policy changes that will really greatly eliminate bias. Here is how your interview processes should be run. Here is how you screen for candidates. Here is how you change your metrics so that the same people aren't given all the free passes, whereas other people you know, fail once and they're, they confirm your beliefs about them and so therefore they don't get another chance. The, the challenge with unconscious bias work is that people bring so much of their own experience and their own judgments into it. I had a, um, a talk I did for a large national organization recently where we had a whole section talking about privilege. And I have the privilege section structured so that we don't mention race in the privilege section as a way of making people, everybody starts to see where their own privilege comes into their outcomes and they can extrapolate from that into race because it's not very hard once you're there, but I never mention race in talking about it. And there was a woman of color who said, I don't feel like having my pain be the basis for teaching white people what they need to already know. And it was just such a fascinating response because I understand where she's coming from. That is probably an extremely difficult position to be put in. But that wasn't the exercise we were doing. And I, I've had... I, I have had white men say to me, um, I don't, I don't want to be in a room hearing you telling me I'm a bad guy. I've never once, none of my work tells anyone you're a bad guy. It comes from a place of here's the brain science, here's the outcomes this creates, here's how we can adjust our policies and practices to fix those outcomes. You came into this room hearing that it was a training on unconscious bias and deciding in advance that therefore I must be there to tell you you're a bad guy. And I work really hard to eliminate that at the outset, but you just can't, you can't get there. People have a lot of emotions tied up, a lot of emotions tied up with this issue. And boy, if the thing I ask everybody is please take your own narrative out of this if you can. Take whatever you feel this is going to be about out of the conversation and don't require us to center it around your emotions. I, I had a, um, a CEO in a group I was speaking with say to me once, how do you think it feels to be a white man right now? And I, I, I will share my response was, I, my response was, well, how do you think it feels to be a black man right now? 
And I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, that's great. No, that's not great. That wasn't a great response because all that response did was shut him down. And the much, much better response would have been, why are you requiring us to center this conversation around your emotions? Because if he had had to answer that question, that might've opened up a really valuable conversation. I, this is the difference between calling someone out and calling them in, pointing out to him that, you know, well, others have it worse than you. That does nothing to change his behavior or his beliefs. Whereas I could have opened that up to a better conversation. These are the challenges that you're always going to have when you try to talk about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, because everybody comes to the conversation with a different belief about, and a different value system and a different understanding of their own experience vis-a-vis someone else's experience. And we have to meet people where they are. I have a technique when I, when I work with a company, with a corporation um, or, or an organization that I'm enclosed when it's not like a large, not, not like a keynote at an industry conference, but within an enclosed system, I talk to people about the fact that you want to have some type of shorthand, some type of way to point out to people when they're being problematic without it feeling like they're being insulted. And so the phrase I like to use is you have spinach in your teeth. Because we all want to be told when we have spinach in our teeth. So if someone is in a meeting and they say something problematic and it's an, an okay enough space to do it, you could say, oh, wow, you might have some spinach in your teeth. Or after the fact, you can take them aside. It's like, I'm not, I'm not sure if you realized when you were talking about Joanne's son, you had some spinach in your teeth. And you're going to get one of three responses. You'll either, the person will either say, yep, I heard it right away. I will not do that again. That's great. And at that point, if someone says that to you, let it go. You don't need to pound that home at that point. Or that person might say, whoa, I have no idea what you're talking about. Tell me more. And then you have a chance to have an open conversation. Or that person might say, I don't want to hear that. Get out of here with that garbage. And in that case, all you can do is make a note that that's how they responded and walk away. But know that a week from now, it might percolate a little. That person might be hearing and thinking, you know, I did have spinach in my teeth at that moment. And I was working with a company and I I went through this exercise and there was a woman who said, I'm sorry, I don't want to have to play that game. If somebody's being a racist, I want to just call them a racist. And, And my response was, how do you think that'll go for you? And I could tell she, I mean, look, I understand she's hurt. She's angry. She doesn't want to have to sit there, but how's it going to go for you? If somebody says something that they don't see the problem with at all. And then you say, whoa, racist, (laughs) you know? So these, these are, there's no right answer. That's, that's, that's the bigger, we have to start to embrace complexity, embrace complexity and live with discomfort. If you are going to be in the perfect space for advancing equity and inclusion, if you learn how to live with just, I'm uncomfortable in almost every space I'm in because I know that I'm not hundred percent right. And because there is no right. One person's I'm okay with that is another person's, whoa, I'm offended. 
And each of those people is right because they're expressing their own personal responses. And I have to live with the discomfort that that causes for me because I'd sure as hell rather live with the discomfort than impose it on someone else. Now, of course, your TED Talk was about unconscious bias. So some of these things that you just covered. So what was doing a TED Talk like? (laughs) (laughs) My TED Talk experience was unique in that for most people, they either apply for or invited to do a TED Talk about eight months in advance. They work with a coach. They craft the talk about six months in advance. They get their text approved. They start putting it on video. They train for it. They do what's called showcases. They are given the blessing from whoever the organizer is that, okay, this is your final talk. And now go memorize it and get off book. And then they go on stage and give the talk. That process is usually around eight months. I was giving a talk at a startup organization and one of the women in the audience was on the board of directors of TEDx Pasadena. And she came to me afterwards and says, I think you'd be good for a TED talk. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. She said, can you meet with our executive director? And I said, sure, you know, next week. And she said, well, how soon can you meet with her? Because their TED event was seven weeks later. So I met with her. I got my coach. I, what I was trying to do was create just basically a TEDx version of my advancement of women talk. And it just wasn't working. It was like, it was like trying to squeeze a beach ball into a mailbox. It just, just didn't work. And in the course of talking with my speaker coach for TED, I told some stories about what it was like for me to try to raise funds as a a female CEO. And I told you, you know, it opens with that visualization exercise. That visualization exercise is truly what I was doing with investors. Now, by the way, side note, there are so many DEI professionals now using my visualization exercise. It's, It's a little... It's somewhat flattering, but it's a little more maddening because a lot. I, I would just invite if you're a DEI professional and you're opening with, you know, picture a pilot, picture a tech CEO, please, please acknowledge that you got that from Valerie Alexander's TED Talk. <laughs> so um, I was talking to my coach about this exercise that I would, this visualization thing I would do with found with investors, and she said that's that's your TED talk. And so I wrote that up and sent it to her. And she said, yeah, this is really good. And that was now five weeks before I gave the TED talk. And I never did the videotaping, which you're supposed to do. And then there was a showcase and I went to my very first showcase, which was the first time I did that talk in front of any other human beings. And there were only two showcases left before the actual event. So I went to that one. I did the talk at the showcase. I got a ton of notes from the the other coaches and the executive director. And there was only one more showcase left. It was two days later. So I went home. I reworked the talk. I memorized that I came back and I did the next showcase and everybody said, that's it. Now you can go be off book. And I had 10 days. I had 10 days to memorize it. I am very fortunate that I am in a screenwriter. I'm I'm still a screenwriter and 
I'm in a writer's group of writers and actors, and we were meeting that Tuesday. And I said, if, if anybody who's willing to stay a little late, I would love to do my 10 talk and just get some advice from you. And they were wonderful. Most of the actors stayed. So I got incredible performance notes from these actors, just incredible. And we have really good actors in our group. Um, and then I'm also, I have a regular game night, a monthly game night. And a lot of the people in my game night are improv actors. And so I asked them, we, by great coincidence, game night was happening during this 10 day period too. And I said, I, I did the talk for them and they gave me just fantastic feedback. So in addition to the coaching I got from the TED organization, I got really phenomenal acting coaching and improv coaching. And I was able to incorporate all of that. So then I gave the talk. And how do you manage all of the stuff that you're doing? Because you're, you're still the screenwriter, you're writing books, you're doing all these talks, talking with companies. Like, it seems like a lot. Well, here's a couple of things. I don't have kids. Um, and that, you know, again, people have to don't look at someone else and think, gosh, I should be doing all of that. Cause I still do that. I still look at other people and think, oh, I should be able to do all of that. The speaking, one of the things that happened during the pandemic is being able to speak virtually changed a lot of things. I mean, I, I worked pretty hard at making sure my virtual talks were as compelling and as interactive as if I were on a stage. And so I've been able to speak a lot virtually, which has taken travel out of the equation. We're back to traveling now. Um, and it, that's a bit of a challenge, but so I had a lot of time where it typically I had a talk, I had a week last November where I had seven keynotes in one week. That would have been impossible if I had to physically be in any of those places. And so now I'm doing about one to two talks a week. Almost all of them are virtual. That frees up a lot of time. I still customize the talk for each client, but it frees up a lot of time. That's been helpful. And I've got, I will say, I, I read four hour work week like three or four years ago when it was like outsource everything. And I was like, who has the money for that? Ah, that's crazy. And how do you find the people? Well, I now have an assistant that has changed my life drastically. And the books, I, I just rewrote How Women Can Succeed in the Workplace. That I was just carved out the time to do that. I, I But that was consciously, like I had two weeks where I just didn't take any speaking engagements. I just blocked it out and people reached out. I said, these two weeks aren't available. And so that time was spent rewriting that book. And then I have a graphic designer that I work with. I have a web page person that I work with. I have the company is now launching online learning. We're going to have online learning for the unconscious bias work. We're going to have online learning for advancement of women. We're going to have online learning for happiness in the workplace. All of those online courses, I have an executive director who runs that now because I can't, the other thing I started realizing is I can't do all of this. Screenwriting is probably more of a hobby than anything. I, I had, I wrote a movie, a Christmas movie for the Hallmark channel that came out. That was great. But the other thing is you have to prioritize. There's the famous business school story about putting rocks in the jar and 
people can look it up. It's in, it's in, it's in my book, Success as a Second Language. But basically, I'll cut to the chase, put the big rocks in first. So my biggest rock is my marriage. That comes first. Then the next biggest rock is Speak Happiness, which is my company. Um, and Speak Happiness is about what we can do to foster more happiness and inclusion in the world. And so speaking for me, like keynotes and workshops for companies and for organizations is the top priority there. The books we publish is, that's, I, I'm not going to say second, but I only publish so many books like mindfulness as a second language came out earlier this year, how women can succeed in the workplace. Just, just last week came out the new, the new edition of it, but there's not another one in the pipeline right now that I'm, I mean, there's several in the pipeline, but chapters aren't coming in. So <laughs> that doesn't have to be a, a top priority. Um, so online learning is becoming the next big rock. And I think probably in about a year and a half to two years, those, those two will change in size between speaking and online learning. Online learning will probably be our primary business model. And then me walking onto a stage to speak will, will come in second. Yeah. Now, before I start to wrap things up at the end, is there anything else that you would like to share, whether about your life, the work you're doing, or just advice for the general listener? I'm going to share that all of the topics that I cover when I speak, whether it's happiness in the workplace, whether it's equity and inclusion, or whether it's the advancement of women, are hard work but they're not hard. And the distinction is think of digging a ditch. Digging a ditch is hard work, but it's not hard. Anyone can do it. You just have to decide you're going to dig the ditch. That's true for your personal happiness. That's true for achieving happiness in your workplace. That's true for achieving equity and inclusion in your workplace. Once you decide you're going to do it, the resources are plentiful. And if you stay committed to a course of action, you are going to achieve better outcomes. But looking at it from a thousand feet away and saying, I will never be able to do that. That is just too hard. That's something we can't achieve. That is not a reason to give up. And, and, and you're wrong. You're wrong. It's not too hard to achieve. It's the, there's a, um, the quote from Faust that is on every dorm room door um, about boldness as genius power and magic in it. People don't realize the entire quote is indecision is the cause of all delays and days are lost lamenting over lost days. Are you in earnest? Seize this very minute. Whatever you can do or believe you can, begin it because boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So if you're in earnest, seize this very minute because whatever you can do or believe you can, begin it. Well, that's a great note to end on. And with all of my guests at the end, I do ask a random question that's a little bit different from anything we've talked about. So if you don't mind me asking about your husband, 
The question I'm going to ask for you is simply, what is your favorite memory with him? We're about to celebrate 15 years of marriage. So one favorite memory is almost impossible to capture, but probably our wedding because we were in Vegas for a party. We'd been dating for three months. He, we got up the morning after the party, went to the Grand Canyon. Then we came back to the hotel room and he said, marry me. And I said, sure. And he said, today. And I said, no, I'll marry you, but not today. And he said, nope, it's a one day only offer. (laughs) And there was a lot of conversation back and forth. It wound up being the next day, not that day. But our wedding was six minutes long. Uh, The officiant could not pronounce either of our names. And I laughed so hard through the whole thing. I could barely breathe. Um, And so, like I said, that was now 15 years ago. So if I have one thing I can say, I'm honestly grateful more than anything for my husband that he decided we weren't going to repeat the kind of marriages our parents had. We were not going to fight with each other. We were not going to scream at each other. And believe me, I spent two years trying to be that kind of wife. And he was like, nope, not putting up with that. And now, oh my God, I can't imagine either of us. I, I can't imagine screaming at him. And if he, if he ever screamed, he's never in 15 years raised his voice to me. And if he ever did, I would literally call 911 because he would be having a stroke. Like, I mean, he, like there would be something so wrong with him that, that for that to happen. So, um, yeah. So, and, and by the way, hasn't been 15 years of sunshine and light. We've had challenges, but um Yeah, I will never regret making that decision. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I've mentioned, there will be a lot of good resources and information in the description of this episode. So I'll be leaving Valerie's website, her link directly to the TED Talk and her LinkedIn as well and as well her author page on Amazon. So if you want to check out any of her books, they will all be right there. Um, Along with, of course, the other resources that she mentioned. She mentioned a handful of books, so I'll leave those names and titles in the description as well. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description, which brings you to all of our social media. So feel free to go and give those pages a follow to see what's coming out. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, I'd love to have you. So feel free to just send me an email that is in the description as well. So thank you, Valerie, so much for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next week. Bye. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was just a pleasure. Time flew speaking with you today, and I hope it did for your listeners as well. And I'm excited that you have made such a commitment to things like happiness and inclusion. And it's a joy to be part of this.